Merry Christmas and welcome to our Christmas special of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Tilt. Yes. Have you recovered from the Christmas party? I haven't recovered from Christmas 1997, if I'm really honest. You may have noticed that my voice isn't quite like it normally is. Yeah, you're not all there. You see, I've got a nice new vocal range. No, Christmas 97 was a good one because that had Trevor McDonald doing Envision Continuity on ITV. I don't remember that. Well, nobody remembers it because nobody watches ITV on Christmas Day. But no, he was he was popping up between the programmes and I think he was giving away a car or something like that. But yeah. You've been digitising oh, some old tapes, haven't you? I have, yes, yes. Do please let us all know if you find movies, games and videos from Christmas Day 1993. Do you think if I'd found that, you don't think I wouldn't have mentioned it by now? My God, that would have been all over well, Twitter. Well, you might be a miser. Oh, misers. Oh. Elegant. <laughs> so this time last year, we launched a pilot for an exciting new podcast called Jaffa Cakes of Proust. And I talked about A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And I thought we'd return to that. But this hasn't really developed into a literary podcast, so we're going to watch three moving versions with actors that you can see and hear. And I picked one that was authentic, not completely faithful, because I'm not sure if there has ever been a 100% faithful Christmas Carol adaptation that has all of the scenes described and only using Dickens' language. I watched some ones that I knew we weren't going to be talking about. I just wanted to gather some patterns. And the one that I recall being the most authentic, the most faithful, was the 1999 version with Patrick Stewart. But even then, a lot of the language has been changed. I think a scene was missing here and there. So one day somebody will do it. It might have to split it over two nights. Maybe it takes three hours to tell the entire story. But one day somebody will do... 100% only Dickens Christmas Carol. But generally what happens is people like to add, take away. It's one of the reasons that I picked this the first time around to talk about, because there are things to emphasise and things to de-emphasise, and occasionally people will add things that bring some new ideas or show the old ideas in a new light, and occasionally people will add things that just, like, oh, that's just ego. Why do you bother? You're not cleverer than Dickens. So, one authentic version, one version that plays around, and one version that is very, very, very not faithful. Now, are you including the adverts in this? I think the adverts have to be put in a separate class. <laughs> we must mention the adverts. Oh, we're definitely going to this. mention the adverts. Don't you worry. But I think least faithful version, television, 40 minutes, and least faithful version, advert, 50 seconds. Those are two separate categories. You're not really comparing like with like. So what are we starting with today, given that we've already covered 321 last year? We're starting with my go-to version, which is the 1984 George C. Scott. Well, I say George C. Scott. George C. Scott plays Scrooge, just directed by Clive Donner. And it was a television movie in the US. It was theatrically released in the UK. It's available on Blu-ray, looking all nice and shiny. Now, can I just interject at this point? Because I'm anticipating the concern of our listeners. The second you said my definitive version, I, said go I think to most version. people... Oh, no, okay, beg your pardon, but same difference. But when you said that, I think most people were expecting you to say Alistair Sim. 
because I think that that's sort of regarded now as the classic version. I rewatched the Alistair Sim version as part of this. I rewatched it just to check. The issues I have with it still stand. Alistair Sim is fantastic. Nobody can really keep up with him. There's nobody to match his performance. Michael Horden just about manages it. Of course, George Cole plays the young Scrooge. They might have been better off having George Cole play Nephew Fred, because then you would have had a bit of crosstalk between Sim and Cole. It's not actually very Christmassy. Mm, It's more (laughs) stark. And it gets very good with the stark and harsh and depressing bits. But the Christmassy spirit just doesn't quite come off for me in that. And it is so deeply, deeply fascinated with the boardroom drama that they have to add Jack Warner as a character who's not in the original story. Because for some reason we have to know exactly how we get from Fezziwig to Scrooge and Marley. I mean, in the original story, Fezziwig is just Scrooge's old boss. He sees a Christmas party and that's it for Fezziwig. There's no sense that Scrooge continued in business and somehow took over Fezziwig's business. And I just find that the past overbalances everything else. There's a lot of non-dicking stuff added in there and I don't get much out of it. Oh, that's fair enough. I think it's lost a little bit of its appeal recently purely because that ghastly colourised version has been the go-to version for broadcasters over the last few years. It's nice to see that at last some broadcasters appear to be bucking that trend and now you do see the black and white version turning up again, nice HD prints of it and what have you. Yeah, maybe we're getting to the point now where we've gone past the gimmicky bits and pieces and if anybody had any idea about making a 3D version of it then that's gone out the window and now we can have nice, proper restored Blu-ray. No, I mean, it's an excellent version, by the way. It's an excellent telling of the story. But it's not my go-to version. If somebody, and as has happened sometimes, some of my younger nieces and nephews have said, I've never heard of A Christmas Carol. I wouldn't show them that one first because it makes the story being so much about Scrooge's downfall being the responsibility of Jack Warner's character and being the important part of the story that I don't think you get the full sense of what the story's about. The emphasis is just in the wrong place. Well, let us fast forward then. 33 years. 1984 it is. This was a very good film for spotting faces. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. How familiar... Have you seen many versions of Scrooge before this? Because last time we talked, you really only talked about that one that you had on a VHS tape you ordered from the school book club. That's right. I had the VHS tape of that. I'd seen Alistair Sim. I'd seen Black Adder's Christmas Carol, and yes, I did know that it was inverting the story. I probably spotted bits and pieces of the other films now and then, because of course they're always on it around Christmas time. But they were the only ones I could remember seeing in full. Because I want your immediate impression of this, particularly George E. Scott as Scrooge, yes, because I think he breaks away from the image in most people's head of a skinny, old, wizened man. I like this overall. Yes, it's quite faithful and it's well produced it's quite lavish for me george c scott wasn't quite scroogey enough for my liking because to me scrooge is you know he's a right wrong one and george c scott too often for me just seemed grumpy rather than being full-on scrooge like but i suppose it is a fine line isn't it because the thing is that more scrooge like he is I know that sounds ridiculous because what am I comparing it to? I mean, how do you determine how Scrooge-like 
Scrooge is, apart from an absolute literal transcript of Charles Dickens. But if he's really, really mean-spirited and nasty and nobody wants to go anywhere near him, then the idea that he suddenly then throws open the windows on Christmas Day and says, hey, what's today? You boy, give me that big old turkey and let's all run around dancing. It doesn't quite add up. Because some of the versions that we've seen here, the transition is a bit more realistic. If somebody's been a a right grumpy sod for 40 odd years, they're not just going to lose that aspect of the personality overnight, no matter what ghostly apparitions have been. Yeah, it's a tough one, but yeah, by and large, yeah, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, it's a difficult balancing act. It's one of my issues with the Albert Finney version. He's really trying for the wizened miser and he becomes so fluffy after his reform. It's just silly. So there's that decision to take. How grumpy do you get to make your reformed version of Scrooge be believably the same person? But also, I think in this, they've obviously been thinking about what it is Dickens is railing against. Because it's not just that Scrooge is a miser. It's partially his view of the world is what he's being punished for. Talks about the poor, that if they are to die, then they'd better do so and decrease the surplus population. What's the word? Malthusianism? So I think George C. Scott, he's like a realistic version of a Victorian businessman who would believe those things. That is the thing. It's not just that he hates Christmas and it's not just that he's a miser. He is aware of all the suffering around him and he hates the people suffering for it. And the other weird thing is, there's the famous line about uh, every fool who goes around with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Scott Scrooge laughs when he says that. So we get a sense he does have a sense of humour. It's just a very, very unpleasant one. But it means it's like it could just be possible that this man could be made to laugh again kindly. Also, he breaks away that he's, uh, I think, the only Scrooge who doesn't wander around in his nightshirt. Yeah, no, you pointed this out to me. I hadn't really noticed this, but you said there was a particular reason for this. Yeah, there's lots of location footage shot in Shropshire. I'm guessing that's not entirely fake snow, or at least it was shot in the depths of winter, and George E. Scott could not face the idea of wandering around in a nightshirt and slippers in Shropshire in the biting winter. So Scrooge keeps on his trousers and his socks, and he's got a nice good heavy dressing gown that'll keep you warm. Just going back to that point for a second there, about how you say he's aware of all the suffering going on, but he's angry at the victims. Have there been any adaptations which have failed to get that across? Have there been any adaptations which makes it just look as if Scrooge is ill-informed? And when it's put to him, he's he's basically, well, I haven't seen any of that round here from my vantage point, my window. Not that I can think of. I think it's not so much that there might be versions that portray him as ill-informed. There might be versions that are just a bit glib about it. I criticise the 1951 version for not being Christmassy enough. It's possible, I think, to be too Christmassy and to say Scrooge is being punished because he doesn't like Christmas. Now, this does an interesting little break as well because in most versions, when he's visited by the ghost of Christmas present and taken to the Cratchit's house, I think the implication is that is the first time he's ever seen or even heard of Tiny Tim. In this version, he sees Tiny Tim as he's leaving work and Tim says that he is Bob Cratchit's son. So he knows that Bob Cratchit has a very small, sickly-looking son who walks with a crutch. And another addition they make, but it's only a small addition, is we see him doing business as well. Yes, that's where John Sharp turns up, and Derry Francis, yes. 
And there's that bit about him selling corn. So we know that Scrooge isn't just a moneylender. He's he's got a general. Maybe he's a what we what are they called? What venture capitalist? Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. He just trades well, stuff no, no, for the yeah. sake of. There's a whole episode of Budgie about <laughs> just criticism of capitalism, where people buy things to sell, but the whole thing is you just sell a thing on to sell a thing on to sell a thing on. There's no end user. Could accuse Scrooge of that. So he's got corn to sell. Scrooge's independent trader. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's that bit where somebody says, but if you put the price up, the price of bread will rise and the poor will suffer. So again, hammering home, this is Scrooge's great crime. He does not care about the needy. Christmas is a time to think and do extra around this, but they've definitely decided that their Scrooge is the unacceptable face of Victorian, not just capitalism, because that makes it sound more specifically political, power and wealth. Yes, indeed. And, and yeah, methods of commerce in general and the state of the rich and poor gap and so on. Yeah, And I think that's why George C. Scott is a good fit for that reading, because he looks like a Victorian self-made man. Yeah, yeah, you make a good point there, actually, because when I'm saying that George C. Scott isn't quite Scroogey enough, I mean, the thing is that you could overdo it. I mean, there's a difference between being nasty and shouting at people and so people get out of your way and actually doing things which are bad for the community and society in general. So, yeah, that's a good point. You said that that whole scene where he's trading, that none of that appears in Dickens at all? And I think that's also done to tie up some of his future to his present. So that later on when we see the men discussing, well, I'll go if lunch is provided, what did he do with his money? Oh, he didn't leave it to me. I think it's like, because otherwise those people just come out of nowhere. The original story is full of just, right, here's a person, right, they do their narrative necessity and then they're off. If I'm remembering correctly, you know the whole thing about him meeting Belle, his fiance, at Fezziwig's party? I think that's not in the story. I don't remember that being in the story before. But nearly no. all adaptations do that. Nearly all adaptations introduce the girl at the Fezziwig party and then they have the breakup afterwards to make it more joined up. It's not actually a very joined up story. Well, it could, could it be then that, that because they are effectively two different stories, two different sections within the one text, that an adaptation is sought to sort of knock those two into one to save time. And then it's become yeah, it's a very understandable sort of... thing. It helps make the story more joined up. I think it starts to become a problem when things get way too joined up. I think this version does a little bit of that because during the Cratchit's Christmas dinner in Christmas Present, there's mention about how the eldest boy, Peter, has got a job. In this version, they have that Fred's nephew got the job for him. So you do risk continuity get too incestuous and everybody knowing everybody else fred is involved in the cratchit's future and i think there's some mention then that he might get peter a better position but he's not in the present so i'm not quite sure why they did that this is another thing there are not many versions that are like this but whenever i see it it annoys me scrooge screwing over fezziwig it's not in the story. Scrooge has forgotten about Fezziwig, really. He worked for him, he had a good time, he moved on, and somehow he forgot the lessons he'd learned from Fezziwig. 
But there are versions, and the Alice Simpson version has an element of this. He's more a party to the screwing over of Fezziwig. Uh, the Kelsey Grammer 2004 version has this as well. And to me, that's too much. That's not just making a joined-up story. That's making it a closed story. It also it serves to make Scrooge a thoroughly bad guy. And I know he's meant to be bad inside, but it takes him from being a bad person to being a villain. Almost this idea that he'd screw everybody he comes across. He's not necessarily somebody who went that way. He's somebody who went that way so quickly, maybe it was latent. I mean, he's not Gary Sparrow, for goodness sake. <laughs> well, I remember reading a review of the Orson Welles from Touch of Evil, and they talk about the villain in that, Hank Quinlan. And there's a conversation in there about Quinlan's wife being strangled. And somebody went, obviously, I mean, obviously we, we know that he did it. It's like, no, the whole point is he didn't do it. The whole point mm. he was, was he a clean cop who couldn't catch his wife's killer. And that's what bent him. Don't put every evil on him just because he's the baddie. We have to learn how he turned bad. Yes, and also it's in a way dilutes the impact of the bad things that they have done because if they just become a cartoon villain, then you don't really give a lot of thought to all the different things that they're doing. Whereas if you've got one person perhaps who has led a relatively sort of blameless life, but they've got this one particular secret, for instance, that's where your attention is going to be focused. So let's talk about the ghosts. This is absolutely hands down my favourite Marley, played by Frank Finley. Give him milky contact lenses and make him look up at the light at all times. It is something in the story that this thing that his eyes don't really focus, but he says he can still see everything. And he is in hell. Frank Finley's Marley is in a bad way. Because Sometimes with adaptations, Marley's chains, for example, they can be a sort of afterthought. Just something that he's got with him and makes a little bit of a noise and what have you. But this is really emphasised when it takes him so long to walk to the chair because he's dragging all this with him. The noise that it makes and so on, it really emphasises, yeah, this guy is in purgatory. Weakest Marley's probably John LeMessurier in the 1977 BBC version. Cause a... He surely doesn't play it as full on Well, there's Wilson, a bit where he? he's meant to howl and Scrooge goes, oh, oh, and... The measure is Marley goes, uh, 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 and yet Michael Horden, the Scrooge, still goes, oh, oh, like he's scared. It's like you're scared of somebody getting attacked in the vapors. <laughs> it's just oh, British oh, understatedness. <laughs> oh. Now, here's a bit that a lot of versions change, and this version does it as well. They have him being told that the spirits are going to visit him on one night, that they come at one o'clock, two o'clock, and. There's a nice bit of fake Dickens in here. It's written in such a style that you'd think it was authentic. He goes, the third, more mercurial, will come in his own good time. <laughs> no, originally, 1am that night, the next, 1am the following night, and the next, midnight, the third night. Now, you see, I think I might have mentioned this last year, that I've always had... Not so much of a problem with that section, but it's always puzzled me a little bit because you can tell me then because you're familiar with the original text. Do we see anything of what Scrooge was intending to at least do in the interim days? Because it, it doesn't. Did, well, no. Do that's you know what a, I mean no, by the that? thing is, is that I think the idea is, is that so his trip to the past 
is his day. His trip to the past, from his point of view, takes at least a day. So when that's over, that's the end of the day. He's been woken up at 1am and he's... <laughs> and maybe he falls asleep, but it means he's been taken back to his home after an entire day in the past. With Christmas present, the implication is is that he feels maybe more than a day has passed. Because something a lot of versions miss out, for understandable reasons, because it would really stretch the budget. The 1971 animated version does it, the 1999 Patrick Stewart version does it, but Christmas present is not just spent with the Cratchits and Fred and wandering the streets of London. He's taken to a mining community, he's taken to a lighthouse, he's taken out to sea, he's seeing how Christmas is spent everywhere, and there is a mention that one of the last things they see is a Twelfth Night Party. Right. So there's some vague possibility that actually his day has been 12 days. Didn't somebody ask the scriptwriter, you know, Groundhog Day? That got folded into the um, EastEnders Man version. Ross Kemp, the Ross Kemp version has the Groundhog Day element that he keeps waking up on Christmas Eve. Anyway, so many screenwriters said that Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, how many Groundhog Days does he go through and said, no, he's there for a thousand years <laughs> from his point of view. <laughs> He is completely broken <laughs> and completely put back together over the space of a thousand years. That's that's why the message really takes. I'm not sure many versions are really good at getting across that sense of time. Is that line? He's the spirits did it all in one night. Well, of course they can. And so it almost feels like what we're seeing happens in real time. I don't know how you do it. You have to be extraordinarily clever, but just to get that sense that from Scrooge's point of view, he's been away between three and 15 days between falling asleep on Christmas Eve and waking up on Christmas morning. Well, if the spirits can do whatever they want, can we not have a... Because if it was nowadays, right, he would check the time on his iPhone. So we'd see the date on the iPhone. And if we're going to do it faithfully, <laughs> faithfully with an iPhone in it, but if we're going to do it faithfully, then... So was it, was it 12 days on from, from Christmas? What's that? Is it January the 9th, is it, or something like that? Um, January the 5th is 12th night, and then people take down their decorations on the 6th, which is the epiphany. And then we've got Christmas future. So Yet by the end of come. all that... oh No, I think there might be a reason for this. <laughs> because the Ghost of Christmas present shows Scrooge a completely parallel universe he shows a christmas day that the cratchits don't have he's effectively skipped forward a bit so in some ways the ghost of christmas present is the ghost of he can go to the future the immediate future but he is the ghost of that christmas that is happening that he's effective he's the ghost of christmas 1843 so he can travel to the future within christmas 1843 the ghost of Christmas yet to come is the ghost of a Christmas that hasn't come yet, but it's not just the future. The future is actually accessible to the ghost of Christmas. I don't know. That was just a thing. Whoa, 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 hang on. Hang on. Could, it not be, could it not be that it's not a glimpse into the future as in 12 hours from now in 1843? Maybe it's live, but then the ghost of Christmas yet to come, or all three of them have got together and then put time back. So they have shown him what happened in 1843, but then they've put the clocks back and allowed Scrooge to change what's happened. That Christmas. Webs. <laughs> <laughs> so the ghost of Christmas passed, often described as an androgynous figure, and 
Dickens does give it the pronoun it, but one of the first things he says is that the ghost looks like an old man, but not so much like an old man as like a child, like an old man seen through a supernatural perspective that gives him the proportions of a child. Dickens is really good at giving you the special effects. He's got a very specific version of how the Ghost of Christmas Past looks, and I think the nearest anybody tries is the 1971 animated version, and even then they don't go all the way. There'd be a hell of a lot of CGI to do that ghost properly. Because the idea is that the ghost sort of fades in and out. Fades in and out by parts. So sometimes you can't see the ghost's head, but you can see the ghost's legs. But then it also goes in and out of focus. So it says at one point it looks like it's got 20 legs. Hang on, I've got an idea. So you're saying that the ghost of Christmas past is old, but yet looks sort of young. Yeah? I think I've said this before, if, you th- if you're going to say what I think you're saying. Well, I was going to suggest Jimmy Clitheroe. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jimmy Clitheroe going in and out of focus and parts of him disappearing. But this version, it's Angela Pleasance. Because most versions make that ghost a woman. I guess just to make sure it's not a Christmas sausage party. Just to make sure it's not like a big Christmas locker room only full of guys. <laughs> Yeah, just a bowl full of sports jokes. <laughs> She's got kind of like a post-punk thing going, hasn't she? With her? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yes, for 84. Again, they add a little bit that we see Scrooge's father. There's that line about father is so much kinder than he is, and then we see Scrooge's father. It's like, not by much. Yeah. What was it like beforehand, then? I don't entirely approve of that, because I don't like Scrooge to get too Freudian. You've got to give some explanation some traumas for him to seize upon but I think really maybe he the seize upon his excuses otherwise you as an audience might let yourself off say well I never went through any of that so I'm okay well yeah but some people always say about young tearaways and what have you I blame the parents so couldn't you then just say oh well it's his own man's fault then Scrooge isn't to blame for how he's turned out but he's so much kinder than he was well the implication is did Scrooge Senior have a visit well, yeah, I asked you about that. That's right. I was wondering about that. I'm thinking maybe this is. I think it's a mistake to show Silas Scrooge, as they call him. They give him a name. I think it's a mistake to show him and show him still being a bit of a swine. And also, don't they mention something like Scrooge's mother died in childbirth? Where does Fan come in? Because isn't Fan meant to be his little sister? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. You've got me confused. Now, for spotting faces, did you recognise young Scrooge? Young oh, should have. Young Scrooge was played by Mark Strickson, famous for playing Turlow in the Doctor Who show in the 1980s. I repeat my earlier statement. Should I have? <laughs> no, just checking. You might have seen him in trailers. Come on, you go back and watch a lot of old BBC One trailers. Maybe I will. But I'm going to watch all the Christmassy ones today. Christmas and that. Two Ronnies. <laughs> I'm struggling with things to say about the past. So if you have any interesting things to say about Scrooge's past... Is there anything in Dickens' original text? And you notice that the way that I've I've taken your request, now I'm just basically flinging it straight back at you. Like it's okay, you're flinging it back with a spin. That's all okay. I ask. It's, all right. Well, it's not anything... like a tennis match where somebody says, here, hold on to the ball for a few <laughs> minutes. That's fine. You can send it back. You're just going to send it back with a bit of bounce. Right, so is there anything in Dickens' original text which is an explanation as to why the Scrooge, who was at old Fezziwig's party and was still perhaps even then a little bit reticent about taking part in all the fun and games and larking about, and my 
my source for that principally is Scrooge with Bill Murray. But let's just take that as read. And then later on, when he breaks up with his fiancée and what have you, is there any sort of hint in there as to... Was he just of that sort of disposition? Let's take what we said about him coming out of school and what have you. So he's already not had the best upbringing, but is there anything in there? Is there any turning point that makes him into this cold, hard-headed, business-first fella? I think that's where the engagement dumping scene comes in. I think that's there to explain that his fiance says, look, we were poor and we were happy and you decided that you needed to provide for me and you've just gone over the top. He started getting hard-nosed in business so that he could afford enough to marry her. And at some point, he's really only interested in the business. He's lost sight of his original goal. So that's the explanation. He's just started buying and selling, and that's it now. Because if he then gets married, starts a family and so on, there is going to be a point at which he's going to have to take his foot off the pedal a little bit when it comes to business. And he's going to have to say, right, I've a accumulated a certain amount and i'm going to carry on making a certain amount but now i need to focus my priorities elsewhere but yeah as you say he's just focused on the the balance sheet so that's it for bell oh no that's not it for bell sorry i was completely wrong there we then have a bit where the ghost of christmas present vanishes and is replaced by jim bowen (laughs) who takes scrooge to see Belle today, well, Belle seven years previously, with her husband and family, and he says, just look at what you could have won. <laughs> There's a bloody big and speedboat in the middle of it. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful, warm family Christmas in a caravan. <laughs> a lot of versions skip that bit, and I think that's meant to be one of the big punches in Scrooge's gut that he sees what he's lost. I did actually have a slight issue with this scene. Okay, so this this is this is not necessarily how this was written. It was just the way it was portrayed, because we see Belle's daughter, who isn't that much younger than Belle the first time we ever saw her, for example. But Belle's made up to be much older. And I thought, well, make up your mind. Which one is it? Because you're supposed to be seeing like Belle as if she's raised this large family or whatever, and now she's at the point of near retirement. And yet her daughter is like mid-teens, but she's acting as if she was like it was her first Christmas and she was gazing up at the Christmas tree and saying, Oh, look at all these nice lights and all these presents and what have you. That didn't seem quite right. That didn't look realistic to me. Shut up. Well, I'm just saying. You can still be enthusiastic about Christmas when you're that age? I'm trying to remember the age I was when I, I lost my enthusiasm for Christmas. When would it have been? No, I'd Four. say probably about oh, by by that age, about 13, 14. Oh, it's gone by then. Oh, yeah. Because the curtain's been pulled back. What? Cu- no! There's no curtain to pull back. They still have I don't, lights I don't, I don't mean, and parties no, no, I don't, I don't mean, and special things on television no, I don't mean, I don't mean drinks you don't normally drink. You are going to get visited tonight. By three spirits, and they're not even going to bother showing you the past, present, and the future. They're just going to punch you in the stones <laughs> till you repent. Budget cuts. It's austerity hauntings now. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not just talking about when I say the curtains pull back, I don't just mean about Santa Claus, obviously. I mean, just in general, it's like you've lived through enough Christmases now as a young adult to know that the day is not necessarily going to be entirely magical. 
I mean, you're going to have relatives coming round, and it's going to be slightly. What, hang on, what year did you turn? I can't think of exactly when it would have been. It would have been around about sort of a teenage year or something about it. But by that point, you've had enough Christmases to know that it's going to right. be a, a lengthy. The, the magic kind of end in 1993. No, and it was nothing to do with ITV. Oh, okay. No. By this point, by that age, you sort of know that, that Christmas, as lovely as it is, is also a potentially stressful time for some people involved. So, yeah, the idea that you would look up... I mean, am I right? This, the, the girl in question, she's about sort of, what, 14, 15, something like that? And, and the way she's portrayed in this, she's gazing up at the Christmas tree like she's never seen one before. And I'm thinking, I'm not buying this. I know I shouldn't be that critical of it, but it's been all lovely and realistic up to this point. So Yes, because it is a weirdly naturalistic version, because doing Dickens naturalistically can be an unusual choice he's very broad broad. do you know what it should have been it should have been there's what's her name again bell as in as in sebastian right okay i've met one of them right okay so there's oh uh, taking over from me now are you just saying so there's bell and her daughter should be there and then her grandchild should be there that's what they should have done then because you get everything then he's like oh i've got a daughter oh look i've got a granddaughter well he hasn't obviously but he could have actually they've got a bunch of kids in the story well well, where were they all then? They weren't here. Right. Actors. In the old days, I know the rules have changed Cardboard now. cutouts. <laughs> Actors didn't act for free in those days. Cardboard cutouts. I know now, if you look at the casting call war Twitter, people are just saying, oh, no, no pay, but you get lunch. No pay, no lunch, but you get this for your showreel. But no, more children means supervisors contracts so i think that's why however this doesn't seem to be a version oh god they're all blurring into one now. i think it maybe it's the 1951 version no the 1951 version changes bell and she's actually working in a hospital or a poorhouse there's one version where scrooge is shown bell in her family home and it's emphasized in the story they're not that well off 1984 bell looks a little bit too rich but there's one version where she appears to have about 25 kids. Now, in the story, they mention that the kids create so much havoc that it's like one kid is worth about 40 in their crazy behavior. But there's one version where it's not even like Belle's a Catholic. Belle's a possum. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did she break off her engagement? There's not enough time to have 25 kids, unless she was like having... Five sets of quids. Well, now, hang on a minute. Now we're getting dangerously close to being sort of postmodern and saying maybe she was having relations while she was still engaged to Scrooge. And well, Just given the number of kids then, when she dumps him, she should already be heavily pregnant. Well, maybe she was. She was wearing a long coat. This is all going very EastEnders now, and we, we don't want that. I'm sorry that I, I went down this that road. That was a triple. I'm sorry I went down this road because I didn't mean to be all sneering and anything like that. It's, it's well, let's come know. to the present. Yes. Yeah. And the Callan of Christmas present. <laughs> if only. Not far off. I believe the original casting idea was Leo McKern, and for some reason he wasn't able to do it, so they got Edward Woodward, possibly a short notice. Now, my memory is is that he's actually not very jolly. He's not as jolly as all the other Ghosts of Christmas present. And going through the versions, it's really easy for the Ghosts of Christmas present to be kind of there, rather bland. He's meant to be Brian Blessed. And yet he never has been, apparently. No. In the 1970 version, Kenneth Moore is in hectoring bully mode. Not just come in and no be better. It's come here, you weird little man. So actually, Edward Woodward is one of the jollier Ghosts of Christmas present. Edward Woodward overacts in this. And I mean, legitimately. Overacting is a good choice, especially for Dickens. 
Overacting is not bad acting. You just decide you're going to pitch your performance right up there. Now, let me just clarify. This is not the same as spare acting, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> Which we're used to in the last 30 seconds of a variety of sitcoms. And we get taken through the streets of London so Scrooge will see something that's got to change his mind. That's important. You have to show, look, these are all the good things that are being laid out. Obviously, they don't have the budget to go all the way because really... Ideally, they'd be shown the entire city's preparations. There's a bit about a Lord Mayor's banquet in some versions. But we are just shown enough, look, here are people getting ready for Christmas. The Jim Carrey version decides to leave in a very 1843 specific reference about people campaigning against bakers being open on Sunday that I don't think was worth keeping in 2009. Well, it's sort of topical now, isn't it? As far as England and Wales are concerned. Yeah, but people don't take their food to be cooked at the bakers on Sunday because they don't have ovens of their well, own. That was the protest. Well, yeah. Who knows what the future they make holds? make those noises, it, it doesn't <laughs> affect the fact that people do not routinely turn up at the bakers with a chicken sink and you stick that in the oven. Here's a hate meat hey, we don't know, for the heat. We don't know what the age of austerity is going to bring next. <laughs> Who knows what 2016 uh, has in store? We could do with a 2015 version of Scrooge. Well, if there is, then Brian Blessed. He has to be. That should be legally binding. If anybody attempts a new version, he has to be Christmas present. Scrooge is taken to see the Cratchit's Christmas feet. Wow, now, casting against type. I think that Bob Cratchit, who in my mind is like the ideal Bob Cratchit, not necessarily the best. I mean, just like the platonic ideal of a Bob Cratchit is Donald Colthrop. In the very cheap but rather atmospheric 1935 version, I'd love to see a nice print of that. There might not be one in existence. He's a small, frightened little Cratchit. I don't like Richard E. Grant as Bob Cratchit in 1999. He just looks like he's overdoing the pathetic bit. This Bob Cratchit, David Warner. Not previously known for playing small, beaten-down men, but I think he does a creditable job. He's just a man not being paid enough, but he has his pride. I always get David Warner mixed up with Michael Maloney, and I think that Michael Maloney would make a really good Cratchit. I can't bring anybody to mind. Michael Maloney, that doesn't... Nothing's happening if, if, in my if, head. You, if you saw him, then, yeah, you okay. get it straight away, yeah. I'll but I think, yeah, I think he's got a bit later. more of a Cratchit about him. I can imagine him. And also Mrs. Cratchit, generally meant to be a lower middle-class Victorian housewife who works a lot and probably quite mousy. Susanna York, not previously known for her mousiness, but I think they get the makeup on her right. They put that kind of makeup that looks like no makeup. So Isn't that just called no makeup? Well, not if you're shooting a film. But if you want to look like no everybody's makeup. Everybody's wearing makeup. I would imagine that'd be a Otherwise very hard it... sell for the manufacturers initially when they brought that product out. This makes it look like you're wearing no makeup. Well, no, it's, it's, he called it the natural look. Oh, okay. It makes it look like you're wearing no makeup, but your skin is very nice anyway. That would have been the rebranding exercise. It is it the Cratchit's Christmas feast where the ghost of Christmas presents manner changes a little bit? I mean, it's in the original story that he starts parroting Scrooge's lines back at him in a very mocking way. But there's an aggression about Edward Woodward. Scrooge notes how the goose isn't very big. <laughs> and Edward Woodward goes, It's all Bob Cratchit's family can afford, mate. Now, he doesn't actually say mate, but <laughs> the callousness is coming to the surface that I keep expecting him to end every line with mate. And, of course, there's that line that, the talk about the surplus population, the realisation that Tiny Tim is the surplus population as Scrooge has indirectly wished people like him dead. And it's 
It may well be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child, mate. This is shot 4 by 3 for television, so I don't think there is an open matte version, but just towards the bottom of the screen, can you see him like holding like a 38 snub-nosed Noguchi Magnum? Maybe that's in the 15 certificate version, but this is like the one that's been slightly cleaned up for the telly. <laughs> and then we go to Fred's and they changed the game. There's a game played at Fred's, Scrooge's nephew's Christmas party, and it's called Yes or No. It's, it's effectively 20 questions with no question Hang on a minute, where's the crucial line in all this? What crucial line? Is there any more turkey? <laughs> <laughs> There's only one version where that is in and also treated like it's a hilarious joke. For some reason in this, they play similes. It still ends with a joke about Scrooge being a stingy old git. And George C. Scott's reaction is just kind of like this, nah, yes, yeah, very funny. The Muppet version of Michael Caine, they keep it authentic. They have them play yes or no. They work out it's an animal. It's often found in the city. It roars. And somebody works out it's your Uncle Scrooge. And Michael Caine, who's been getting into the party spirit, he's been softened by it. He just looks heartbroken. That moment, it's just, he's just been punched in the chest. George E. Scott Scrooge was kind of expecting it. And then we get a scene that's not in the original story. It replaces all the scenes where they go out to sea. They go to a lighthouse. They go to a mining community. But it's important to show more than just the Cratchits and Fred. I think some versions, they show a little bit of the streets, but then Cratchits, Fred, done. And in this, we get... What is the name of the actor? It was in an episode of Still Game, you told oh, me. Oh, uh, 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 Brian Pettifer. So we see Christmas with the homeless, and it's a homeless family. Their Christmas dinner is some potatoes that fell off a cart. And there's the discussion. He says to his wife, he said, look, tomorrow take them to the parish poorhouse. And she says, I'd rather we all drowned than for me to go there and have the family split up. So again, this is what the poorhouses were like. This version emphasises... This is Scrooge's crime. He approves of the poorhouse. He isn't interested in what happens there. But I think it also substitutes for a scene in Yet to Come, which isn't in this. It isn't in most versions where when Scrooge says, can I see some softer reactions to this man's death, we actually see a couple of Scrooge's debtors who are happy that he's dead. But not because the debt's cancelled. They know the debt will get sold on to somebody else, but it gives them time, and nobody the debt gets sold on to could be as bad as Scrooge was. I think it just serves the purpose of, look, here are some more poor people. Don't forget. And then, of course, we have another bit that's missed out a lot of versions, the two children underneath Christmas presents robe. Now, you had an alternative, and you had an alternative suggestion for that, didn't you? Yes, my alternative suggestion was that the ghost of Christmas present says, look here beneath my robe. He opens the robe and there's Russell Hunter as Lonely, who says, well, that gun for you, Mr. Christmas, and passes it to him and the ghost of Christmas present just guns him down in cold blood at the end of Scrooge. Because it's like, you know, just see what you like and I've been ordered by Christmas Hunter. <laughs> somehow, I guess we have to make it that Scrooge somehow presents a threat to national security. I can see why they didn't go with that. Mind you, Russell Hunter as Scrooge, what do you reckon? Russell Hunter as Cratchit. Okay, right. I think he would have knocked that out of the park. Oh, I've got an idea. Les Dawson playing Scrooge as Cosmo Smallpiece. <laughs> I think it would be a very different lesson. <laughs> yes. Would he really let Bell go? <laughs> if his choice was between being 
a rich, lonely man and being a poor man with a bit of the other. <laughs> Accessible through Bell. How would he have coped at that Christmas party? Oh, yeah, well, he'd have been thrown out. They have an interesting take on Yet to Come. This is one of the few versions where Yet to Come makes a noise, even if it's just kind of like... Aah! I'm not sure there's an actor in there. I think there might be an operator. It looks about eight feet tall, and the, the hand looks like it's possibly mechanical or some sort of puppet thing. And there's an unnatural lighting, which I like. I like versions where the future just doesn't look quite normal. Scrooged is very good for that. The future looks odd. It's not naturalistic. I think it helps give the three spirits different things. So the present should be generally incredibly festive, and even at the Cratchits, there should be a, a certain warmth. And the future should be cold and odd. Anyway, Scrooge decides he's too old to change and he dies at the end. What? <laughs> I just realised we've spent a lot of time talking <laughs> about this version. One little note, of course, is uh, Liz Smith as Mrs. Dilber, a part she also played in the 1999 Patrick Stewart version. Scrooge wakes up deciding he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want Tiny Tim to die. He wants to live. He wants to enjoy Christmas. And I think George C. Scott sells it. Yeah, because he doesn't go over the top. He doesn't start jumping around the place on a pogo stick. Well, he starts like jumping around. Well, a little bit, yeah. And but... those similes that Scrooge shouts in all versions, which is, I'm as happy as an angel, I'm as merry as a schoolboy, I'm as giddy as a drunken man. But we have that, that he, he shouts, I'm as happy as an angel, I'm as merry as a schoolboy. And then he stops and goes, oh, I'm as giddy as a drunken man. He realizes a little too much too soon. That's a great way of playing it. You've got the language out, but you've actually used it as a stage direction. It's like, okay, let's not go crazy here and his scrooge acts like he's just had a weight lifted off his shoulders like well he has he's been given a piece of bad news followed by a piece of good news the bad news is you will be dead very soon and the good news is that doesn't have to happen no, actually no here's the point okay i'm asking you to refer back to the original text but what does the story say about the immediacy of Scrooge's demise because if it's simply that he's being shown the future and at some point he will be dead then as upsetting as that is for him to see that then it's also a foregone conclusion but is there anything in the story itself in the original to say look you're on Hobo's last Christmas right now if you don't change your ways well the Cratchits I think make the difference the implication is well Tiny Tim died as a child so it's not like you're going to be dead in 15 years time well, some versions have it that Cratchit has just been to visit Tim's grave. I think it's in the story. He's been to visit the plot. He's been to visit where they're going to put Tim. And in about three versions I can think of, they then pick up with the idea that Tim is still in the house. And in the 1935 version, we see Tim laid out and Bob goes to sit there with him. So if Scrooge sees that, I mean, just by looking at the ages of Cratchit's other children, if they've only aged a year, he's being told in no uncertain terms, Christmas 1844, you're not here. So is it established that everything that he's looking at then in Christmas yet to come, that everything is in 1844? Well, he sees the conversations about his death. He sees his stuff being traded before he sees the Cratchits. That's true. Yes, that's true. Because the thing is that we've already established with the, the previous, well, with the ghost of christmas that's been that they can sort of jump around the years so they're not limited to one year but yeah that makes sense then if it's all sort of linear yeah even then though they jump in linear fashion so yes i think it's been made clear to him that he has 
about 12 months to live if he doesn't change. And no, new, happy, jolly Scrooge is very believable. He's very quiet, actually, in the way he's happy. When he gets the turkey. Now, this turkey, man. (laughs) (laughs) Not from Family Fortunes. Uh, has his own little cart. In the original story, it's he's come on foot and Scrooge says, I'll get you a cab. He can't go to Camden Town without carrying that thing. Well, in this version, the poulterer already has a cart to take him to Camden Town. So Scrooge pays him for the turkey and then says a little something extra for your time and slips him a few more coins. But he's not, oh, ho, ho, it's a big turkey. Oh, this is... <laughs> It's a quiet oh, what, kindness. What I could do if that ever was legal. <laughs> and there's a bit where <laughs> this got to get you're only getting a repeat on Challenge TV. <laughs> there's a bit where he passes some carol singers and he says, "Like angels, exactly like angels," but he doesn't shout it. He doesn't join in. He just gives them some money. Also, a lot of versions when he goes to Fred's for dinner, he turns up in the middle of the party. This in keeping, they do change some things, but this in keeping with the original story, he turns up before preparations have begun properly. I think the table's being laid when when he turns up in the story. He turns up before anybody's arrived for the party. Now, I need to ask this question. Fred, is he supposed to be well off to the point where he's got servants, or is he supposed to be poor but happy because we've seen both depicted in various interpretations? He has servants. I think he's not as well off as he could be. Yes, this version does have that bit with the bracelet, doesn't it? Where he looks like he's rolling in it. No, he's got a position in society. He's a gentleman, but they do kind of miss that out. Because Screw says you're poor enough, but I don't think he means you're poor. I think it's just like you are not what you could be. If you hadn't got married, you could have a big building with your name on it. But again, there's that very naturalistic scene. It's added, but Scrooge says to Fred's wife, I was in love once. Would you believe that? She says, yes. Nice, quiet little scene. He says, I was once a weak man. And she says, oh, once a week's enough for any man. <laughs> hey! <laughs> the one bit I think Scott struggles with is the I'm about to raise your salary. I think they say double in this version. I think it's a weak joke. I mean, it's a weak joke in Dickens that I won't settle for this and therefore I'm about to raise your salary. It's a truck driver's gear change of mood. And I can't fault any actor for having difficulties with it. We see, this is one of those things which is purely for the benefit of a U-turn, a gag, whereas in real life people wouldn't act like that. You know, why why would Scrooge suddenly, even though he's gone through this transformation, why would he suddenly develop a sense of humour to the extent where he thinks, right, what I'm going to do here is that when Cratchit turns up, I'm going to pretend to be really, really bloody annoyed at him. I'm going to keep us going for as long as I can. I don't think that would be realistic, would it? Uh, I don't know. Especially this version, who giggles at the stake of holly through his heart. Maybe he's just got a slightly naughty sense of humour. Cratchit's going to be well paid. His son's going to be well. But Scrooge is occasionally going to hand him a line (laughs) just for a laugh. So if we talk about Reformation and redeemed Scrooge, let's move on to our... This is the version they messed about with. Choice. An American Christmas Carol from 1979, starring Henry Winkler as Benedict Slade. Our action has moved to New Hampshire in the Depression. Circa, I think, 1932? Is it 33, actually? Because mentioned that Roosevelt's oh, that's, president. Yes, it is 33, yes. And Benedict Slade looks like Mr. Burns. They've put a lot of ageing makeup on Henry Winkler. 
it's generally effective, actually. It's, it moves reasonably well. It's not one of those aging makeups where parts of his face move and parts don't. Uh, Reginald Owen's stupid cheeks in the 1938 version that you keep expecting to flop off. When he grins, you see these weird creases where the rubber has been attached to try and make him wrinkly, I guess. The advantage of taking the plot and being able to muck around with the specifics is you can actually still get to themes. It's not like doing an acoustic ukulele cover version. Sorry, I heard... I can't remember what song it was, but I saw somebody lauding a cover version of a song and said, oh, they get to the song underneath the record. And I thought, oh, God, no. No, so this just gives an opportunity to really pump up some themes, really play down some themes, because you don't have to worry about getting the scenes authentic. You're just taking the ideas and messing them around. There are just certain things where it's really very effective because it can depart from Dickens, it can add lines. I really enjoyed this version. Without it making look like they think they're cleverer than Dickens. The one bit, I mean, so let's go to, he's visited by Jack Latham, the Marley figure. Latham says, he said, hell's not what you think it is. It's not devils with pitchforks and eternal fire. And Benedict Slade thinks, oh, thank God. Latham says, it's worse. He's told that it's basically being who you really are and having to live with it. He said, there's a king who has to look at the faces of all the soldiers he sent off to die. As a politician who has to listen to his own speeches. But I just thought that was a nice little twist of the knife light. It's worse. Now, I really enjoyed this version. I thought it was very well constructed. And I agree that it did what it needed to do in order to restage it elsewhere, different time, different era. And yet it didn't feel as if it was just going to business for itself. That's all it is now. A faithful reproduction that actually restages it somewhere else but yeah i think they pull it off well see see some of the restagings is just all about being unpleasant uh, diva's christmas carol i can't remember the name is it vanessa williams which is she's a famous soul singer and it's amusing it's cl- they do a very nice take on christmas yet to come but there's no sense of she's a horrific social darwinist who ignores the poorest in society it's just she's up herself and she really needs to get over it and she mistreats her staff. It was that Tiswas version as well? I didn't get to the end of that. <laughs> I'm partway through <laughs> Tiswas version. Again, like the George E. Scott version, it's like this is his real crime. It's to do with the suffering around him as much to do with him keeping all the resources to himself. And of course, they find a parallel with that in some of the thinking that was going around in the Depression. I mean, he doesn't send the carol singers away with a flea in their ear. He gives them leaflets saying you can do it and self-made men I can't remember the names he comes out with but he comes out with the names I think he might even mention Herbert Hoover oh. mind you I mean it is actually quite nice for him to give those out for free rather than sell them for like 20 quid on Amazon like one of, <laughs> like one of his modern day contemporaries would do these days so generally he is just a money lender well no he sells things on higher purchase well he of course he invented higher purchase didn't he well, no, he brought it to that particular town. Oh, yeah, he yes, heard about yes, he did. It. Yeah, yes. So that's one of the things we see at the beginning is him repossessing people's possessions, and he's scornful of learning. Somebody opens a university shop, and he's a guest that it's just books. So it's a university; you should have bow ties and ukuleles. Even then, so bottom line, harsh economic thinking, 
yeah, he's the Scrooge that we know. He's just not called Scrooge. So we've got no Fred in this one. No Fred. It's all about Cratchit. We have something I don't like, which is that the ghosts are people he's repossessed stuff from. He's repossessed the piano from the orphanage, the orphanage he grew up in. That I don't like. However, it does result in one weird bit. There's not quite, going to be quite as much to say because we've, we've delved in some of the themes. It's, it's really the interesting departures. There's a really nice line which is a man who is soft as an old shoe is generally of little worth. It sounds like something Scrooge would have said. Actually, do you know what? I thought that this was the worst excess of Scrooge's badness in this. The idea that he just tears up books because he wants to preserve the leather cover. Yes, and sell the rest of scrap paper. Yeah, that does seem particularly nasty. And he tears up what's supposed to be a first edition of A Christmas Carol because A Christmas Carol, the story, exists in this. I think that tips over into, yeah, would he even go that far? I mean, really? Actually destroy literature? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have believed that if I'd seen George C. Scott doing it. But perhaps, given the era, and I'm not saying that 1933 was necessarily worse than Dickens' era, but it does seem that he is more of a cutthroat businessman. Well, he's American. It's a different <laughs> kind of capitalism. Well, he's not just a miser. He is willing to go to the ends of the earth as far as nastiness is concerned to make him sent. They do make it more joined up. So he's adopted out of the orphanage by the Fezziwig type figure. He doesn't screw Fezziwig over, but as Fezziwig falls, whatever the character's name is, not Fezziwig, but Brewster, that's it. As Brewster falls, Slade rises... And you spotted something, didn't you? <laughs> Long before it became a plot issue. Because <laughs> they're in this sort of... Have you ever seen Lauren Hardy busybodies? They're in the sawmill, making the, all the bits and pieces. And there's a fellow there with a bloody big cigar. And I'm thinking, a bit dangerous, isn't it? In a business primarily working with wood. And you just said, ah. And then when that scene... <laughs> because years later, the sawmill burns down. Well, when that scene ended, nothing had happened. So I thought... Oh, what was a how about it? But then later on, ah, so there you go. So the sawmill burns down. That's part of Brewster's downfall. Again, maybe we're getting a little unbalanced with the boardroom drama. It's not just Belle. He's dating Brewster's daughter. No, you should just explain they are I one think, and the same person. Isn't he? You, you should just explain that they are one and the same person because that, that sounds like he's actually dating two women at once. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now, this was the version I thought you'd complain about because have they made up the original actress to play her own daughter and she's definitely playing it a lot younger. <laughs> it's like she's playing it like she's nine and she looks about 20. Didn't really pick up on that, no. Okay, but we actually haven't said, I could have had a child like that. So it's like, yeah, ram that bit home because some versions miss it out. But you say that he doesn't screw over Brewster. But he sort of does, doesn't he? It doesn't actually... No, he's always pushing Brewster to change his work methods. Cheap out, production line, use nails instead of proper glue and higher purchase. So he's just always pushing for Brewster to be more interested in how much money he makes and using the most ruthless business methods than the product he's selling. And of course, people like Benedict Slade won in the end. Yeah, but this is the thing, because when he takes his higher purchase idea to your man Marley, they don't really focus on us a great deal, but it does happen. Doesn't Brewster go to Marley, let's call him, for a loan because his insurance had lapsed before the fire? And then Slade actually says, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't be lending him any money because it's a failing business. But he doesn't directly do him over. But yes, I suppose there is that. The Cratchit figure is called Jonathan Thatcher. <laughs> 
And what year was this? 1979. <laughs> no, the more amusing thing is that he refers to his son as Mr. T. <laughs> Do you know, I actually misheard what was going on initially. Because every time Slade would prompt a repossession, and Thatcher was the one who had the repossession order in his hand, he would shout, Thatcher! And Thatcher would come over <laughs> and unwillingly hand over this notice. Now, I actually thought initially he was saying gotcha. I thought this was some sort of catchphrase he had whenever he was about to get some material back. He'd shout, gotcha! So one of the bits to go is Christmas Pest is played by the bookshop owner. Christmas Present is played by the men at the orphanage from whom he repossessed the piano. Is there anything much to say about Christmas Present? Just see the Thatchers. Oh, because he's fired Thatcher that, on yeah, Christmas Eve as well. Right. It's not just a matter of he went the whole day off, I suppose. <laughs> he's fired him. So we see a very grim Christmas Day at the Thatchers. And also there are some specifics about Tiny Tim, because it's not just theory fairy he needs some medical attention. It's actually he specifically needs to go to Australia. Well, Christmas yet to come, of course, he's very different because he's got lines. Yes, and he's played by Dorian Harewood, who plays a character called Matt Reeves. He's a poor black farmer. And while past and present look like their 1933-ish selves, Christmas, we'll just call him Christmas Future because this is a less faithful version, is an angry black man with an open shirt and two medallions. One of the indications that things are about to get weird is Slade is listening to a repossessed radio. And before Christmas passed, he hears a report about the stock market crash, and then he hears about Lindbergh. And then before Christmas Future, he hears some music that is actually quite futuristic for 1979. It sounds a bit trip hopish. There's some very weird rhythm that's fighting whatever's going over the top of it. And you almost get the feeling that Dorian Harewood is having to be playing this beaten down farmer it's like you know i can actually play suave but a little bit menacing okay fine you can work you in so that's what he does he's the suave but slightly menacing but also kind of funky gust of christmas yet to come a little bit of disco undercover what if they had fully embraced this idea and the entire scene with the ghost of christmas yet to come was produced using say quantel and it's just it, it looks like you've just landed on say MTV in 1981 everything's kicking off it's just colors you know flashing everywhere and they've got all these different fonts appearing on the screen and Slade doesn't know what the hell's going on it's quite unsettling actually it'd be disturbing but the idea that he'd be dead by 1981 probably wouldn't be that upsetting to him (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is that is a good point (laughs) oh you know the whole thing that when Scrooge, and in this case Slade, sees their stuff being sold. It just like tries to pretend this could be my own. When this, the auctioning off of Slade's possessions takes place in front of a massive Latham and Slade sign, there's really no plausible deniability about what's happening here. We see the grave of little Mr. T, and here's where I think they do play around with it, because Thatcher and his family go away. They turn around... Slade and the ghost turn around and Slade is shown the grave but that is not a new grave. There's like five years of overgrowth. as this thing about unattended, uncared for, forgotten and the ghost says that is the only real death. So I'm thinking there has actually been a bit of messing around with time. That in the turning around from Thatcher, Christmas future has pushed things a little bit farther. Not just you're going to be dead this time next year but after that it will be as if you never lived. And then Benedict Slade is reformed. 
by his experiences. And this is where it gets interesting. That whole balancing act of playing grumpy versus nice. Well, his intentions have changed. His actions have changed. The consequences of those actions have changed. His manner is pretty similar to how it always was. So he goes to the Thatchers. He brings them Christmas presents, but he doesn't bring any presents for the youngest boy. He's jerking him around. It's empty. And then it's... <laughs> yes, there is something in his manner like 90s Columbo. And then he pulls out an envelope and he goes, oh, this is not very big. Do you like to ride the bus? There's a ticket for a bus to Boston. Do you like to ride the train? There's a ticket from Boston to Chicago and Chicago to San Francisco. Do you like to sail on a ship? There's a ticket from San Francisco to Australia. He's going to pay for him to go to the clinic. And he does mention there will be a nurse with him. And there's a nice twist here. I don't think they keep the exact line from Dickens, but in Dickens there has been that thing about if things remain unaltered, I see an empty place at the table and a crutch without an owner. And here, the reform slate says, you know, sending him off to Australia, he says, don't worry, you'll just have to get used to an empty place at the table and he won't need that crutch anymore. The prophecy has been fulfilled nicely. I'd like that. And then, as we mentioned with George C. Scott, there's a whole problem of, I'm about to raise your salary. We don't have that matter here because... He tells Thatcher, he pretends he didn't fire him. He says, there's work to do. So he's making Thatcher work on Christmas Day. Okay. And as they're driving around and what they're doing is they're returning the repossessed items to everybody. And he says, do you expect to be paid for today's work? And Thatcher says, oh, no. He said, you should. You're going to have to start thinking like an executive. So, again, there's that weird gruff thing, but he's he is telling him, look, you are going to get paid more. And what's going to happen is he's, he's going to reopen the old quarry. There had been talk at the beginning about there being a plan some people were talking about if they reopened the new quarry and slated poo-poo, that he's now behind the idea. And then he goes to the orphanage, and in a reflection of what happened, Brewster came to the orphanage and said he wanted somebody who was a bit troubled, somebody who really needed the opportunity. Slade does that. He sees a boy who's not really taking part, and he asks the orphanage director, does he use tools and... Darius says, yeah, but only in aggression. He says, I think I know that boy. And then he threatens physical violence <laughs> on an orphan on Christmas Day. But it is for his own good. <laughs> he just comes up and says, now listen here, my fine friend. I'm bigger than you and I'm stronger than you. And you can come with me, happy and smiling. Or I'll drag you from this room kicking, screaming, which will not make a good impression on your friends here. And the kid's about to walk away and he stands on his foot and looks at him. <laughs> But then he takes him to the old sawmill and talks about maybe getting the sawmill working again. And he gives the same speech to the boy that was given to him about, do you know what this is? It's a stick. Oh, a stick? It's not just a stick. You could do anything with this. You could turn this into the whip handle for taming lions. You could turn it into the spoke of a ship's wheel. I like how Slade gets it a bit wrong or adds his own bits and changes bits. He's, it, it has to come through the filter of his own personality. Or he gives the boy a knife. Sees a troubled boy on Christmas Day, threatens violence on him, and then gives him a knife. But also, that kind of ties up with that shock that he's seen that his fiance has children, and he could have had children, and now effectively he's going to have... Well, he says that, he said, you'd have to live with me like a foster son. And I think it's been said that he'd been in and out of foster homes. So, roll credits. Yes, it's a nice little twist, and it doesn't feel as if it's a step too far away from the original. And that's another reason why I like this adaptation, because it's got the confidence to do its own thing without fundamentally altering the original text. 
Which is more than can be said for <laughs> what's coming up. Well, I think if you want an indication of, of how faithful our last version is, the title is Scrooge's Rock and Roll Christmas. <laughs> you need to convey somehow the excitement that you felt when you found this online because you were very, very pleased to discover the existence of this and then discover <laughs> that there was a version on the internet. One of the things you talked about last year was finding the least faithful version. And you did mention that, was it Verizon commercial? But when we pared it down, we worked out there was nothing to say that this man was Scrooge and there was nothing to say that that boy was Tidy Tim. So we needed a version where it's like, yeah, Scrooge, it's definitely Scrooge. We are telling you now, this is Scrooge. And yes, Scrooge's Rock and Roll Christmas, as the title implies, contains Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Jack Elam, probably an actor more recognisable to Americans of a certain age. I don't doubt if I watched the right TV shows, I'd see him a lot. And there's no sign of Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit is mentioned, but Scrooge is in his counting house, working through his books, when in walks a girl <laughs> who thinks she's walked into a record shop. Somehow she's passed through a dimensional portal, and she thinks she's going to a record shop in 1984, but ends up in a counting house in 1843. Does she know who Scrooge is? Is Scrooge a fictional character or famous in her world? I don't know. She seems remarkably unfazed at meeting Ebenezer Scrooge. This is much more emphasising the power of Christmas, isn't it, rather than ignore... This is emphasising... What? what is this emphasising? <laughs> what is this doing? Actually, do you know what? I didn't even pick up on the fact that she herself appears to have travelled back about 100 years, or 140 odd years. So that means that Scrooge himself has become one of the visions, doesn't he? I suppose. So where does Mike Love fit into this? <laughs> Wherever the hell he wants. Hey... Guy wrote the lyrics of Good Vibrations. Scrooge is just minding his own business and then herself turns up and says, hey, where's all those hip and happening records like, you know, Dean Martin and Perry Como and all those. She doesn't say Dean Martin. Rock and she, she says she thinks she'll get something groovy by the Beach Boys. And well, in 1984, get something maybe in the cutout bin because you, you don't want to be getting, like, keeping the summer alive, I think was the most recent Beach Boys In comparison album. with the rest of the lineup, I'd say the Beach Boys were cutting edge in 1984. So, Mooncat, I mean, Gary, whatever the <laughs> hell you're called. I'm sorry, it's time for looking back. It's Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. Let's pretend that I have never heard of rock and roll. What would your reaction be? I'd be a little surprised, in all honesty. If you're teaching me about rock and roll, what's the first name you go to? Okay, oh, I don't know, Elvis? Fine. Or Little Richard, Chuck yep. Berry... Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. ACDC. Black Dyke Mills Band. Yes. Bronski Beat. Indeed. Quite. Wham. Yes, Wham. They were big in 84. St. Winifred's School Choir. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So she says to him, you've never heard of rock and roll? You know, Paul Revere and the Raiders? <laughs> it's the first name that comes to mind. And she just happens to have a magic snow globe through which they can watch rock and roll. And that's what they do. There's no you shall be visited by ghosts. There's no real talk of his reclamation. She's just, one, appalled that he has no Christmas spirit, but B, she's really bothered by the fact that a man living in 1843, so he's born, what, 1780, 1790, she's bothered by the fact that he's never heard of rock and roll. I think she's not meeting the past on its own terms. You saw the faces of everyone at the dance in Back to the Future, right? Now that's only 30 years out of date. They were willing to accept Chuck Berry, and yet he's much more agreeable to the idea, isn't he? Yeah, he goes on and off again about whether he's bothered, and he asks her questions about this rock and roll. 
only misunderstand something. Well, that's understandable because she doesn't understand what rock and roll is. <laughs> so through her magic, she shows him rock and roll Christmas. Three Dog Night doing rocking around the Christmas tree. And she tries to explain the name Three Dog Night and misses out a big chunk of. She says it's the thing in Australia that the coldest night is a three dog night. That's how many dogs you have to sleep next to to keep warm. I guess nobody in Australia has four dogs. It just never gets that cold. Merrily Rush singing White Christmas. I mean, the second song is non-rocking. I'm not saying it's not a pretty version. Well, actually, there is one point at which she says, is that rock and roll? And he says, no, that's not rock and roll. Yeah, but that's like the second thing she <laughs> So she's already started diversifying. I mean, this chapter of this How to Learn Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll for Dummies book really should be at the end, not chapter number two. But then we get real rock and roll, authentic rock and roll. The first thing you think of when you think of rock and roll, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and they do a reggae version of Jingle Bells. Now, when you say reggae, you mean reggae like it used to be. <laughs> reggae like it's never been before. Or will be again. What we're saying is basically she shows a bunch of kind of pop videos. They've all been shot at Big Bear, California, which is a mountain retreat. So it's just people of a certain generation i don't want to come off like snotty and superior i can't come off snotty and superior everybody involved in this is more talented than i am they've created i only commentate this is white middle-aged suburban rock which has every right to exist i imagine that if i did a bit of calling round, i could probably get the phone numbers of half the people in this <laughs> i have ties well okay i've met one of the producers of this film how many of the acts in this have performed in a rock and roll, inverted commas, medley with Mike Huckabee? And some people, actually, some people in the audience have thought that it was a bit sort of cutting edge. There's a wonderful excess of Christmas comfort, and I will definitely watch this on Christmas Day. I'm just not sure it entirely succeeds in explaining the phenomenon of rock and roll <laughs> to people. <laughs> but, I mean, the good news in Scrooge's case is that he's not really going to be around in... 1950 to find out otherwise. As far as he's concerned, he's had a fantastic glimpse into the future. Okay, the uh, poultry and the Raiders, they sing jingle bells around a horse-drawn wagon with wheels and everything. <laughs> it is not anything you could call a sleigh. And yet Mike and Dean, that famous duo, Mike Love and Dean Torrance. Also referred to as Mike Love and the other guy. No, Dean Torrance, you know, he was in Jan and Dean, but I like how they said Mike and Dean, like if we just say it quickly, nobody will notice <laughs> that that's not actually a famous act. <laughs> Like Brucey and Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, so it's like Mike and Dean, just like that famous double act Mike Winters and Ben Warris. They have a sleigh anyway. Mike and Dean, they have a sleigh. They sing Jingle Bell Rock. Have I just like said that every song was Jingle Bell Rock at some point? Because it kind of did feel that way. It does, yeah. I mean, it's very safe, isn't it? This is a very safe show. This is something that's not going to offend at 8 o'clock at night on a Sunday. But there's also talk of introducing a brand new star. This is what we talked about last year when we talked about there should have been a Scrooge-based edition of Jimmy Greaves' ill-fated chat show. <laughs> and past, present, and yet to come should have got a star of the future. Yeah, well, they would have got somebody off New Faces. Well, they've tried this with Bridget. Bridget. Just Bridget. Nothing else. That's her name, Bridget. That is really no use for Googling. So I've not been able to find out anything about Bridget. She sings a song called Some Children See Him. But I don't know if she... Wa well... I think if she was that big of a star, I might be familiar with her. But I don't know if she burned too bright and fizzled out. 
or if it never really happened for her. I don't have a surname, so I don't know what Bridget did after. I mean, maybe after convincing Scrooge of the healing power of rock and roll, she decided that there were no more worlds to conquer. Actually, I'll say this about Mike and Dean. Their fight at the beginning, it looks like they're going to square off like the opening titles of Not On Your Nelly. (laughs) But is that where it's going to end? I mean, Mike, Dean, they're singers. They're famous for singing. But if they'd wanted to skip singing and just have a jolly good scrap. If they're having the scrap for the entire video, are they still actually miming to the lyrics? Or have they just abandoned that altogether? It's not about the music anymore, really. It's about a really well-staged fight. I would have enjoyed Was oh, this a really well-choreographed piece, is it? Have they got somebody associated with the Bruce Lee films and what have you? They've got him in and, and he's really going to give them a full workout and it's it's actually quite graphic in places. <laughs> is there much more to say about this? So anyway, right at the end, having seen all these magical videos through the magic of snow globes and the power of rock and roll, Scrooge is visited not by his nephew Fred, but by Mike Love of the Beach Boys who sings, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Mike seems to be a bit off his game. He's not really connecting. And I've seen Mike Love live, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's the lack of an audience. He's not quite looking into the cameras like he's engaging. If this had been a live performance, he would have been there. But he sings, have yourself a merry little Christmas, and he leaves Scrooge a little Christmas tree and then goes off. Can we just talk about Mike Love? Because he had a bad reputation within Beach Boys fandom. There was a faint feeling that he was the reason that the Beach Boys are seen as cheesy and sat in bomber jackets and appearing on Baywatch and all that kind of thing. But now inside Beach Boys fandom, a lot of those wars have been fought and generally the feeling is, yeah, you can pile too much on the guy. He did actually sing on those records. He wrote lyrics, some very direct, conversational, nice, breezy, brisk lyrics. Some very profound, touching lyrics. But uh, uh, now on the outer edges of popular culture, people are now aware of Mike Love and they hate him. So I don't know. what. Eventually the expansion of restoring his reputation will touch non-fans, but I don't know what will have happened in fandom by that point. So do you think this is part of his attempt to soften his image? No. Oh, we have no evidence that this ever went out on British TV, do we? Ah, oh, if only. Well, I did suggest... The idea that inexplicably this had turned up in July on Ulster television unadvertised. <laughs> well, maybe YTV showed it during an ITN strike. <laughs> I enjoyed it. We though. watched it twice, didn't we? Yes. Well, you watched it twice. I think I was onto my fifth <laughs> watching it. <laughs> this was delightful. And it was very nice to find something that was so far removed from the original story and yet still had the nerve to call itself Scrooge's in the title and was an hour long as well. Yeah, I think we found the least faithful version in the class of normal length. I mean, you could argue that this was effectively a 40-minute commercial for a record company. I can't remember the name of the company. There is a soundtrack album. If this is a least faithful long-form adaptation, what about, say, commercial advert length? You're the one who found it, so tell people about Nolan Propane. 
Okay, so we're looking around on YouTube for advertisements that involve Scrooge. And we found a few, and there was like some modern, some old-fashioned, and what have you. And they usually, you, know, you can sort of imagine it yourself. It's like, Scrooge, there he is, walking away, bah, humbug, and so on. And then he gets introduced to the magic of M&M candy or something like that. You know? Was that McDonald's one, which is set after Scrooge's Reformation? So it's, I think it's Christmas 1844, and Scrooge is having... A Christmas party at his. Yes, and the catering has been supplied by McDonald's chicken nuggets, which I presume were new at the time. And yeah, so I actually put that down then as canon, as, as a sequel to A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Nugget. No, this was a series of four advertisements, all part of the same campaign, and it was for a local propane gas dealer. And we had Scrooge all year round in different seasons. Yes, it basically told us the story of how... Scrooge was won round by the amazing offers with regard to propane gas. Well, it's weird because it's all about Scrooge being miserly because he saves money with Nolan propane, but he's essentially a heroic figure in this. So it's post-reform Scrooge, and yet it's all about how he likes to save money. Maybe that makes sense, really, because Scrooge can't be so generous that he simply bankrupts himself because he's no good to anybody then. So he hasn't lost his sound business sense. He's taken to painting out one of his teeth black. I know it's meant to be a missing tooth, but one of the first things we see is a big close-up on his mouth, and you can see that it's just shining black where it's been painted. He saves the Cratchits from a gas man who wants too much money. And, yes... <laughs> He's there going, you rascals! And it's like, okay, fine, it's getting a bit weird. And then uh, suddenly, out of his fist, there pops a lightsaber. <laughs> we never see him do anything with it. That'd be going too far for the daytime audience. But it establishes that he has the power. Scrooge has the then force. Then we see him playing baseball. <laughs> and then summer is when it gets really weird. We see a couple walking along in faintly 1900s dress, I would say. They come by a pool, they toss a penny in the pool. And Scrooge goes swimming for the penny. So there's still some weird <laughs> miser obsession with money going on, but I guess it's meant to be heroic Scrooge. But he's wondering, where are all the other pennies? And he looks into the pool, and he sees the god Neptune <laughs> laughing as pennies rain down upon him. He goes, that's Scallywag Neptune! And then he swims to the bottom of the pool, and I think they have a fight. I'm not sure. It's like that Mr. Sparkle commercial from The Simpsons. Nolan Propane are still operating out of New York. Is there a possibility that you go into one of their showrooms, I presume they have them, that you might actually be served by Ebenezer Scrooge himself? So I think overall that wins for least faithful version. And of course, combined, it makes six minutes, all the different campaigns. There's probably been shorter, supposedly authentic versions than that. Sometimes we'll mention that when things get overly complicated, we'll, we'll say, now this looks like it was designed by committee. Now, this definitely does, but actually, for once, it's worked. It's worked out in a good way. Because I don't know who it was in the committee who said, how about a lightsaber? You know, the kids are into the Star Wars, aren't they? The Star Wars is how they called it. And so somehow that's found its way in. But no, it benefits from being over-egged. It's just a pity that nobody outside of New York really ever saw these commercials at the time. But we will... On Twitter, we will post a, a link to this on YouTube. And please, please, everybody, everybody click on it, because what I'd really like, actually, on this lovely Christmas Eve would be for Nolan Propane to be scratching the head and thinking, why are we getting all these hits from the United <laughs> Kingdom all of a sudden? So as Tiny Tim said, God blesses everyone, except we forgot to mention in the 1984 version, for some reason they say God blesses all everyone. Yes. 
I don't know why that word is added. Well, that's a mystery, and it'll have to remain a mystery for this year. But this is us for Christmas. We've had lots of lovely seasonal episodes between Jaffa Cakes and the Sitcom Club. And if you haven't had the Sitcom Club already, by the way, that came out yesterday, and that was our lovely big Christmas party, and we'll talk about Peep Show. And in the meantime, you will find Jaffa Cakes in the new year. You're going to find Jaffa Cakes in its new home. And I'll tell you all about it long before then. We'll tell you in a second what we're going to be talking about in January. But for the meantime, you can start following us if you'd be so kind. And you can find us on our new Twitter handle at Jaffas for Proust. We'll be retweeting everything that tweets on the Sitcom Club account for a while, just to make sure everybody eventually catches up. Yeah. When we return in our new monthly format in January, what in the wide, wide world of say, television for now, what are we going to be talking about come New Year? We're revisiting the Doctor Who show with the adventure of Doctor Who and the Gunfighters. There will be singing, and it will be by Linda Barron. You've promised me this has got narration through it by Nurse Gladys Emanuel, so I'm looking forward to this. And to give you time to recover from Hogmanay, we're going out on the 2nd Friday of January, which will be the 8th. Well, that's marvellous. And in the meantime, if you want to hear any of our previous shows, you can still find them at sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com as well where there's all manner of other podcasts available some of them seasonal like this one and in the meantime if you've got anything for us at all you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com and as you already know our twitter handle is still the sitcom club and also jaffas for proust but we'll give you all that information again come january so look forward to that in the meantime tilt raise your glass if you wouldn't mind and cheers i was tapping my fanta can there well i've got a thermos of bacon potato soup that'll do fine that'll do fine so raise your fair moss of bacon and potato soup and i will raise my fanta zero i will say thank you very much indeed to all our listeners for joining us this year have a very merry christmas and a happy new year and we will see you again in january